You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles before you, let's bow together before we begin. Our Father, we always need your help in order to understand your word. You have given us your spirit in order that we might know the mind of Christ. And we pray that, Spirit of God, you would be our teacher today. As we come to the book, we pray that you might make the book alive to us. It is living. It is powerful. And we pray that we might encounter that living quality in your word, that we might be transformed by it, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold in here wonderful things concerning our Savior. We thank you for your word and for its revelation of you to us. And we ask now your blessing upon this time that you would energize our hearts together in wonder, love, and praise for you, our great God and Savior. Amen. Turning your Bibles to the book of John. This time, chapter 5. I'm going to read just a couple of verses from chapter 5 and then... We will flip over and read John chapter 7. John chapter 5. Let's begin with uh, verse, verse 9. This is Jesus encountering the man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, and this man was crippled, he said, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It's the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And now turn over to chapter 7. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, last week I started with a proverb, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Today, another modern proverb, no good deed goes unpunished. You ever heard of that one? No good deed goes unpunished. We know that sinful man has this erring capacity and almost an infinite capacity to misjudge the motives and actions of his fellow man and to judge and to condemn even the most gracious and generous of deeds And if it's true of you and I that we do good things and people misassess them and judge them wrongly and criticize them and critique them and 
condemn them and punish us for them, how much more so was that true of the Lord Jesus, who was the light and coming into a world of darkness, he was hated. And we saw last week that even in the face of all of the good deeds that he did and all of his good teaching, that he was greeted with nothing less than the most slanderous and hostile of accusations, such as them calling, saying that he was demon-possessed, and that what he did, what he did under the power and under the influence of the Prince of Darkness. This episode in John chapter 7 really is linked back to the miracle that we just read in John chapter 5, and we have seen as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John that no matter how gracious Jesus was, no matter how good he was, even in spite of the fact that everything he did and everything he was was only gracious, loving, kind, and good, that he was constantly criticized for it and reproved for it and even hated for it. You saw that back in chapter 2 when he cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, and that should have been, and it was, a gift to all the Jews. Any God-honoring, God-loving Jew there would have thanked him for it, should have thanked him for it. And yet the religious leaders, in an attack on him, criticized him for it and said, what authority do you have to do this deed? Give us a sign. Show us some miracle, some sign that you have the authority to cleanse the temple like this. And then in John chapter 2, after he did all those miraculous works in Jerusalem, it says that he was greeted with basically a shallow and uncommitted faith by the multitudes. They didn't commit themselves to him. They didn't bow down and worship to him. They quote-unquote believed upon him, but it was nothing more than a shallow, uncommitted belief. And that's why Jesus did not commit himself to them. Then you see the crowd responding the same way in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, he should have been worshipped, he should have been adored, he should have been thanked for that. Were the Jews thankful that he had done such a gracious, loving, and kind thing to one of their own by healing the man? Were they thankful? No, they said, you do it on the Sabbath. They didn't argue with the miracle. They didn't claim that he did it by any source of trickery. They just said they criticized him for doing it on the Sabbath. They hated him for it. They tried to kill him in John chapter 5. Then in John chapter 6, after feeding the multitudes, what did they try and do to him? They tried to make him king for their own selfish ends, by their own selfish means, in order to satisfy their own desires. They tried to make him king and take him by force and make him king. And then after teaching them that he was the bread of life, the one who provided for them all that they needed, how did those crowds respond? They got up and walked away, turned and walked away, uncommitted and unsaved. No matter how gracious he was, no matter how loving he was, no matter what kind deed he did, he was greeted the same way. No good deed goes unpunished. And now in John chapter 7, there is a connection here between this conversation that Jesus is having in the temple with the Jews, the religious leaders, and the miracle that he did back in chapter 5. So we read about the miracle in chapter 5. Their criticism then was that it, he would did this on the Sabbath. And that's why they hated him. They tried to kill him for it. And now in John chapter 7, he picks up this theme again. He's referring back to chapter 5, saying, this deed that I did in your presence, you marvel at. And now in John chapter 7, he's going to do something different than he did in John chapter 5. The issue is the same. The crowd is the same. Um, the location is the same. It's Jerusalem. Their intention is the same. They're trying to kill him. All of that is the same. But now it's time has passed. It's 18 months later. And Jesus did something in John chapter 5 when they criticized him. Now in John chapter 7, he's going to do something different. It's the same issue. In chapter 5, Jesus answered it this way. He said, you're right. I did this deed on the Sabbath. But he didn't even defend the deed. He didn't even correct them about their theology of the Sabbath. Here's what he did. He basically said to them, I have authority to do whatever I want on the Sabbath because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Because I have a special relationship with the Father, that as long as the Father is working, I am working. And because I am God, I can treat the Sabbath however I want. 
And he didn't argue with them about Sabbath law. He had not violated the, tr- the Sabbath law. He violated their traditions. But he didn't argue with them about that. He basically asserted his claims to divinity. And in John chapter 5, we have the divine son discourse. It is the, the clearest, most straightforward, most unambiguous declaration of his deity, his full deity that you find almost anywhere in Scripture. Now, he's already laid out his claims before them in John chapter 5. But now in John chapter 7... As I said, the issue is the same, the location is the same, the people are the same, and their intention is the same to kill him. But now in John chapter 7, he does something different. In John chapter 7, he actually enters into a debate with them where he corrects them on the nature of the Sabbath. So now he defends the deed. In chapter 5, he defended his right to do as he pleased on the Sabbath by giving them the claims concerning himself. John chapter 7, he is actually defending the deed that he did itself. All right, so now we pick it up in verse 24. Sorry, verse 21, we're going through verse 24, and Jesus' answer to them. And you're going to notice that this falls really neatly into three points. First, he identifies the cause of their hatred. Then second, he gives them some correction on the Sabbath. And then third, a caution concerning judgment. The cause of their hatred is verse 21. The correction on the Sabbath, verses 22 to 23. And then a caution concerning their judgment in verse 24. So let's pick it up in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. Now here he is identifying the one deed, and the one deed that he has in mind is no doubt that deed back in chapter 5 surrounding the man at the pool of Bethesda. We know this because it's the Sabbath controversy. He's speaking to these people. They know what he's talking about. He knows what they're talking about. And it's almost assumed that everybody understands that the deed he's talking about is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Now do you remember all the Sabbath controversy and all the Sabbath regulations and legislation, rules and laws and everything, that traditions that we had that showed you were attached to the Sabbath back in chapter 5. I'm not going to go back and re-preach the sermon from chapter 5 because that's available if you want it. You want to hear about all the traditions and all the laws and all the onerous, onerous regulations regarding the Sabbath keeping and the Sabbath law. You can go back and review that at your own time. It's really not necessary to do that. But you have to be familiar, at least in your mind, that of what this controversy was and that they were accusing him of being a lawbreaker. You violated the fourth commandment which is to do no work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is referring to that act back in chapter 5. I healed this man, and look what he says, you all marvel. You all marvel over it. The word means to be to, to have an expression on your face which is, is surprise and shock. It is, a, it is a condition of wonderment and awe. That was how, it, that was how they responded to it. You, you marveled over this. You were shocked over the deed itself. Do you remember back in chapter 5, they didn't, they didn't try and and uh, explain away the miracle that he did because it was obvious to everybody what he had done. They didn't try and excuse it. They didn't explain it away. They didn't say he's just a magician or it's just a, a stage show. It's just a trick. It's an illusion. Sleight of hand. None of that. Friends, they could not deny the fact that he had done a legitimate miracle of healing a man that had been lame for almost four decades. They couldn't deny that. They couldn't deny that he had actually done a sign. And what they should have done was when they saw the sign, they should have said, They should have fallen to their knees in worship. And they should have said, this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. They should have obeyed him. They should have adored him. They should have loved him. They should have praised him. They should have entrusted themselves to him. But they didn't. Instead, they criticized him for doing the deed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I did that deed, and you were all shocked by it. You you all saw the miracle. You were amazed at it. You didn't criticize it. You understood it was supernatural. That was obvious to you. But they criticized him for doing it on the Sabbath. That was the cause of their hatred. Now look in verse 22 and 23 at the correction concerning the Sabbath law. 
the correction concerning the Sabbath. Verse 22, For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. I'm going to break down Jesus' argument here. That phrase, for this reason, which comes in the beginning of the verse in, in the NASB, the New American Standard Translation, for this reason, or therefore, your Bible might say therefore, it can be taken either with the first half of that verse or the second half. So there's a little bit of a translation uh, interpretation difference here as to how, how we understand that phrase and what it's referring to. Listen, ultimately, Jesus' argument stands or falls. It doesn't matter whether the for this reason applies to the first part of the verse or the second part of the verse, but I want you to be aware of this. It could be taken in one of two ways. For this reason, could be attached to the first part of the verse so that the verse would read like this, just as you read it. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. In other words, the for this reason is explaining the reason for Moses giving them the, the right of circumcision. So Jesus is explaining what Moses was doing and the reason for Moses giving them the right of circumcision. And look what Jesus said. It wasn't Moses who gave it to you, but circumcision was from the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, the, the right of circumcision predates the Mosaic law. Here's why Moses gave you circumcision. Because it was actually handed down, not just from Moses, but all the way back from the time of Abraham. It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's four centuries, more than four centuries prior to Moses giving you the law. And it was included into the law by God and by Moses because it goes all the way back to Abraham. In other words, the for this reason could be explaining the reason Moses gave circumcision. Or the for this reason could be attached to the second half of the verse, in which case it would read like this. Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And for this reason, on the Sabbath... You circumcise a man. Now, if you take it that way, then the, the, for this reason is explaining why they circumcise people on the Sabbath. I prefer the second way. It seems as if that is exactly the point that Jesus is making. He is explaining why they would circumcise somebody on the Sabbath. So he's not explaining why Moses gave circumcision. He is explaining to the Jews, look, there is a reason why you circumcise people on the Sabbath. And this is the foundation of his whole argument. He's explaining their reasoning. Moses has given you circumcision, though it wasn't Moses. It goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it was included in the Mosaic Law, and so you have that. And because Moses has given you circumcision, and because circumcision predates the Law of Moses, you circumcise somebody on the Sabbath. Now, either way you take it, here's the bottom line. The Jews had within their law two seemingly contradictory requirements. The first, do no work on the Sabbath. That's the fourth commandment. Handed down by Moses, given by God at Mount Sinai, do no work on the Sabbath. The second, on the eighth day you shall circumcise him in his flesh, in the foreskin of his flesh. Leviticus 12, verse 3, I think it is. Two seemingly contradictory requirements. Now, how are they contradictory? Because if a woman went into labor on the Sabbath, or had a baby on the Sabbath, which labor is working, right? That's why they call it labor. Apparently, I don't know, I've never done it, but I guess labor is working. So a woman would work to give birth on the Sabbath. And if she, a woman gave birth on the Sabbath, then they would, by law, Leviticus 12, verse 3, be required to circumcise that baby on the Sabbath. Because that would be eight days later. They say, hold on, on the Sabbath, and then the Sabbath, eight days. That wouldn't quite be eight days, would it, Jim? Well, it actually would be eight days, if you remember how Jews count days. Jews count days, be a, a half a day as a full day in a Jewish reckoning. You see that in the resurrection of Christ. After three days, he will rise again. He was crucified on a Friday, and the Jews would call that the first day. Saturday, the second day. Sunday, the third day. 
So if a woman had a baby on the Sabbath, that was considered in the Jewish reckoning of time the first day. And so then Sunday would be the second, all the way through the eighth day would be the following Sabbath. So if a woman had a baby on the Sabbath, then the following Sabbath they would have this moral dilemma. Should we circumcise the baby? It's a violation of the fourth commandment. But if we don't circumcise the baby, we're violating Leviticus 12, verse 3. We need to circumcise the baby. Right? And so Jesus is saying, this is the reason you circumcise somebody on the Sabbath, because Moses has given you the command to circumcise the baby on the eighth day. Although that doesn't go predates Moses. It goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here's how the Jews reasoned. A woman goes into labor and has a baby on the Sabbath, and we are required eight days later to circumcise the baby on the Sabbath. We have before us two seemingly contradictory commandments or requirements. Do we obey the law of the Sabbath, or do we obey the law of circumcision? Which one do we obey? We can't obey the one without violating the other. So which one is to take precedence? Do we circumcise, or do we do no work? Which do we do? And here's how the Jews solved the problem. They said the requirement to circumcise predates the Mosaic law by over four centuries. It goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the fathers. So since that commandment predates the Sabbath, though the Sabbath was observed and people did observe days of rest before the Mosaic Code, it was not instituted as a sign of the covenant until 400 years after circumcision. So since circumcision came first chronologically, we will give that one precedence. And so we will go ahead and suspend Sabbath observance in order to fulfill the chronologically prior requirement of circumcision. Everybody follow me so far? Further, they would say that circumcision was a work of necessity. It was a work of necessity. It was something that had to be done as a sign of the covenant. And so if you didn't do the circumcision as a sign of the covenant, you would break the covenant, and then Sabbath-keeping would make no difference. So since circumcision was a work of necessity, they would argue, not only because it's chronologically prior, but necessarily prior, as a work of necessity, we will suspend Sabbath observance in order to do what has to be done on the Sabbath in order to fulfill the law. So every time a Jew circumcised a baby on the Sabbath, they were confessing this. There are works which must be done on the Sabbath without violating Sabbath law. And it is okay to do necessary works on the Sabbath if those works have to be done. And in such case, it would not be a violation of the Sabbath law. Does everybody follow me so far? So chronologically, circumcision is prior. Necessarily, circumcision is prior. And so we give precedence to circumcision over the Sabbath, and we will do this without violating any Sabbath law. Do you remember all of the details and the traditions and everything that was attached to the Sabbath we covered in chapter 5? Most of those were added to Sabbath observance for the purpose of justifying the work that they felt had to be done on the Sabbath that they couldn't avoid, right? Like lifting something and throwing things. You remember all that goofy stuff? All of those things were added in order to say, well, see, in this way we can do the work that's required without technically violating the Sabbath. And yet if they had just understood, look, there are some things that have to be done on the Sabbath. Moses understood that. Everybody understood that. And everybody made exception for it. That's Jesus' argument in verse 23. Now, two. Now, that lays the foundation. Verse 23 is the kicker. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Listen, friends, this is just an argument from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus is simply arguing, if this is okay, as a lesser thing, then how much more is this greater thing okay? In other words, if you injure a man on the Sabbath, in circumcision, 
Is not my healing a man something so much greater, also allowable on the Sabbath? If you do this tiny work of circumcision on the Sabbath, and it's no violation of the Sabbath law, then is it not allowable that I could do this much greater, more gracious, more loving work on the Sabbath without it being a violation of the Sabbath law? If you cut and injure a small member of a small person on the Sabbath, is it not okay for me to make an entire man well on the Sabbath without violating the law? Was not one of the primary requirements of the law to love your neighbor as yourself? Right To show love to your neighbor? Is there any more gracious or loving thing that Jesus could have done to that man on the Sabbath than to restore to him the capacity and the ability not only to move on his own, but to provide sustenance on his own? Is that not an, almost an infinitely loving thing for him to have done? And Jesus is saying this, the work that I did in healing that entire man on the Sabbath and restoring to him all of those cap- capabilities is far more loving, far more gracious, far more kind, far more good, and far more necessary than anything the circumcision accomplishes. So if you can circumcise a man on the Sabbath, and it's no Sabbath violation, how much greater this much more gracious work that I have done is not a Sabbath violation? If that work is necessary, what about the work that I did? Is that not equally or greater in necessity than what you do in circumcising a man on the Sabbath? Now really, you can see how Jesus' argument, maybe you've already noticed this, really cuts both ways. And it's no pun intended with the circumcision thing. It's an argument that really goes both ways. It's, it's a sort of a two-edged sword, and here's how it, it, it goes both ways. He has already argued positively. If you do the lesser work, the greater work is also allowed. That's the positive side of the argument. But the opposite, the implication is also true. If I am a lawbreaker because I have done this great, good, necessary deed on the Sabbath, then are you not by the same standards lawbreakers because you have done something far lesser on the Sabbath? Do you see how the negative side is also true? If I'm a lawbreaker for doing something that's greater in necessity and goodness, are you not a lawbreaker for doing something that is far inferior on the Sabbath and justifying it? Now, Jesus has got them right on the horns of a dilemma. There's no way they can answer that because there's no answer to it. And, and I don't even think they did answer it. You can see from verse 25 that, G, that John moves on to the next group of people. Some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? We know where this man is from. Wherever Christ has come, no one knows where he is from. John moves on to the next group of people and what they were saying about Jesus. He doesn't even re- record the response of the Jews. And you know why that is? There's no response to that. They are caught in their own rank hypocrisy. They justified this little thing, and yet they had the audacity to call him a lawbreaker for doing what he did. And I don't don't even think that they even understood what type of an argument he was going to give them, but there is nothing that they could have said. You would think in the ways that all the, the, the Jews were constantly caught by Jesus in the discussions and the arguments, and they lost all the time, you would think that eventually they would just stop. I mean, if I was a Pharisee, I would have said, you know what, I don't care if he says the moon is purple, I am not going to argue with that guy. No matter what he says, I'm done. I'm not discussing it. No more public conversations, because he makes a fool out of me every time I open my mouth. And that is exactly what he has done here. They had an entire system of the law, and he has caught them in a point where they have to realize, you know what, if we continue to hate him and persecute him and seek to kill him for this, we have no excuse for this. Because we are either lawbreakers or we are hypocrites. And you know what the truth was? They were both. Lawbreakers and hypocrites. And they had nowhere to go with that argument. 
That's the correction on the Sabbath. Was it okay to do, just for your own understanding, was it okay to do a work of necessity and grace on the Sabbath? Hey, you could pull an animal out of a ditch. You could help your neighbor, right? Those were not prohibited by the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never intended to be an onerous observance. The Sabbath was intended to be a joyful observance. And it should have been a time of doing good to the neighbors and loving other people and fellowshipping with each other. And it was never intended to be have all the restrictions and the, the details that they had added to the Sabbath. But they had turned it around, and Jesus catches them right in their own hypocrisy. Now look at the third thing, and this is a caution concerning their judgment. Verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And I think Jesus is speaking of two things there primarily. First, he's talking about their assessment of his deeds, and then second, their assessment of his character, his person. And Jesus says, do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 24. There is no period after the phrase, do not judge. You see that? There's no period after that. We live in a postmodern age in which all judgment is considered wrong, right? It's wrong for you to call people wrong. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't judge people. Of course, that's a judgment, isn't it? Of course it is. You can't avoid judgment. Everybody judges. Everybody should judge. There are things that we should judge. Yet we're told that the 11th commandment is thou shalt not judge. In fact, if you listen to some people, you'd think the only thing the Bible ever said was thou shalt not judge. Jesus wasn't into judging. We're not supposed to judge anybody. We're not supposed to judge anything. We're not supposed to discern anything. And some Christians have bought the lie and believed that this inappropriate to judge anyone for any reason, for anything, at any time, under any circumstances. We are never to make a judgment call. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, do not judge, period. Now verse 25. He says, do not judge according to appearances. You and I are called to judge. You should be judgmental. You should be constantly judging. You should be judging the difference between truth and error, the difference between true teachers and false teachers, true teaching and false teaching, right and wrong, light and darkness, all of those things we are called to judge, and a whole host of other things. The question is, with what heart do I judge? Is it a self-righteous, hypocritical heart, like the Jews, who stood in violation of the law while calling him a lawbreaker? Is that the type of judgment we are to have? Or am I to have a heart that judges righteously, according to a righteous standard? I am to have a a heart that judges according to a righteous standard. Where most people get in trouble, and this is what's condemned in Scripture, is judging somebody with an unrighteous judgment. And that would be basically my own standard. Or judging according to appearances. So there are things that we are to judge. And Jesus says, don't judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Now what they had judged, or what they had discerned, was his deeds and his person. First they had said concerning the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, That was a violation of the law. Now here's how verse 24 applies to their judgment of his healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Had Jesus done a work on the Sabbath? Sure he had. He's not denying that. He never denied it. He did do a work on the Sabbath. The question is, what kind of a work was it? Was it a lawful work or was it an unlawful work? It was a lawful work. And if they had understood rightly the Sabbath and the reason for it and what Jesus had done, if they had judged from something other than appearances, they would have said, that was a good and necessary thing, and he should be praised for that. But they didn't judge that way. They judged with unrighteous judgment. And they had looked at his work and said, that's a work, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. And the carrying of your bed is a work, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. So both the guy that was healed and the guy who healed him are both lawbreakers. That was an unrighteous judgment. They had come to the wrong conclusion, and Jesus is saying, what I did was a work, yes, but look, don't just judge my work by appearances. On the surface, it looks like a violation of the Sabbath, but in fact, it is not. 
And if you had the discernment necessary, you would be able to tell by the nature of the work that I did that it is no violation of the Sabbath. The second thing that they had judged by strictly appearances was Jesus himself. Now I'd ask you this question. Just seeing Jesus in the temple or seeing Jesus sitting there teach and seeing Jesus walk amongst the people, would you have ever been able to discern his true glory, majesty, and excellence? Would you have ever been able to see that? Did his appearances do justice to who he really was? No, there was no stately form or majesty, nothing that we should be drawn to him or desire him, Isaiah says. Right? If you had seen him in the temple, you'd have said, ordinary Jew. Ordinary Jewish man. No halo, no glow, no white robes, nothing that would mark him apart, different from ordinary men. And just seeing him, the Jews would have come to this conclusion, he's an ordinary Jew and a lawbreaker at that. But Jesus is saying, you're judging according to the wrong standard of judgment. And in order to assess Jesus rightly, you have to look beyond mere appearances. You have to look at his character. You have to look at his nature. You have to look at his claims. You have to look at his deeds, his personality, his holiness, all of that. You have to go beyond mere appearances. If you had just seen him in the temple, ordinary Jew. But appearances are not sufficient to adequately discern who Jesus is and what he was saying. So don't judge according to appearances. They had failed when they tried to discern his deeds. They had failed when they had tried to judge his character and his nature and his person because they were basing everything on appearances. Now here's the takeaway for you and I. There is nothing more common for you and I than to judge people and actions based upon mere appearances. We do this all the time. It's unrighteous judgment and it shouldn't be done. We ought not to do it. I catch myself doing this constantly. Now I'll give you a couple of examples which should suffice to show you how we do this. Sometimes you look at a ministry or a church or an organization that is growing and it's being blessed and it looks like it's being blessed. It's growing and it's increasing and they have a worldwide scope and everything's going great on the surface and you think to yourself, God must be blessing that. Wait a second, not necessarily. There are other ways of explaining numerical growth other than the blessing of God. Or the opposite could be true. You could look at a ministry that is growing and being blessed and say to yourself, well, there's no way they could grow unless they're compromising something. Right? You can come to two totally different conclusions based merely on appearances from the very same thing. You and I are not to do that. You can't judge a ministry or a church or an organization and its growth based upon mere appearances. You have to look beyond that and say, what is the doctrine? And what is the leadership? And what is the fruit of that? And what is the philosophy of ministry? And what are they really doing and really accomplishing? And what is going on behind the scenes? You can't make that judgment just based upon appearances. Or we do this with people all the time. Somebody does something, we say, that was horrible. Horrible for them to do that. When in reality, if we looked beyond the scenes, we might say, you know what? That was a very good thing that they did. And we ought not to judge their motives and why they did it and what they were thinking and how they were thinking it when they did or said what they did. Because that's judging based merely upon appearances. How did this person's demeanor strike me? Well, they must have been thinking this and this and this, and they must have had this motive and that motive, and they must be meaning to do this, that, and the other thing, and we make an entire judgment based merely or only on appearances. That is wrong. You and I ought not to do that. We should give the benefit of the doubt to other people and not judge people and their actions based merely upon appearances. How many families have been ruined? How many marriages are under stress? How many children's lives have been ruined? How many... How many business relationships have been destroyed merely because people assessed or judged things only on appearances and not according to truth? 
It takes discernment, it takes wisdom, and it takes knowing Scripture to be able to step behind appearances and say, what is really going on here, and how am I going to make a righteous judgment? Now, when it comes to the Lord Jesus, I am convinced that when you judge him based not upon appearances, that you find that he is who he said he is, he did what he said he was going to do, and when he offers eternal life, he means it. Because Jesus is true. But in order for somebody to come to a right conclusion about who Jesus is and what he did, they have to look beyond appearances, don't they? They have to be willing to obey God, as Jesus said. And when they are willing to obey God, then they will know whether the teaching is of God or whether it is not of God. And when they judge Jesus based upon merely appearances, they're going to say, oh, he's a good teacher. He's an ordinary man. But Jesus is saying, if you base your judgment on him on merely appearances, completely wrong. You will come to the wrong conclusion about who he is and what he did. All right, let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us the wisdom of your spirit and to the ability to apply these things rests in your grace at work in us. We pray that you would help us to make right judgments and right discernment regarding truths and truth and error. Help us to be judging in the right way with pure hearts and true hearts. And help us, we pray, to rejoice in our Savior who is the truth and who came to give us the truth. Thank you that he was not a lawbreaker, but that he kept the law perfectly on our behalf. And so the righteousness that he has can be ours in full. We thank you for such a glorious Savior and such a wonderful redemption which you have purchased for us. Again, our gratitude comes to you because you have changed our hearts and made all of this possible. And so we thank you in your Son's name and by his grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.